This world has not been a kind place to sparrows. When Jesus asks his followers in Matthew's gospel, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, he's talking about a real thing. He's talking about a, the common house sparrow, Passer domesticus, if you're nasty. That's the little guy on the cover of your bulletin. It's the most widely distributed bird on the planet. That bird is everywhere, and it was everywhere in the first century. That's why sparrows were so cheap. They were stripped of their feathers and roasted on skewers like kebabs. The, the two-for-one sparrow meal deal was kind of like ancient fast food, right? It was easy and it was cheap. So the house sparrow seems to have knit itself into human destiny pretty early on in our species' development. Archaeologists have found sparrows' bones mixed with humans' bones in burial sites in Israel that go back almost 100,000 years. So we've lived with this thing for a long time. And familiarity can sometimes breed contempt, as they say. In the world of nature, as in many things, we tend to value what is rare and denigrate that which is common. So little guys like rock pigeons and starlings and cockroaches and rats and the house sparrow, who have ingeniously adapted themselves to the way that we live, particularly the way that we live in cities, have tended to get short shrift. We provide them with their favored habitat, with eaves and roofs. They prefer to roost in stone, not in trees. And in return, they eat our garbage and keep our bug population in check. You can call that a parasitic relationship if you want to. You can call it mutually beneficial. You will find humans everywhere you find, you will find sparrows everywhere you find humans on this planet. And in this country, at least, they are branded as a dangerously invasive non-native species. They threaten the native habitats of our native birds and are supposedly responsible for the wholesale murder of our more valued species, like the eastern bluebird or the purple martin. That, that, uh, that fearful rhetoric around the house sparrow and what she represents, that goes back to the 1850s, when the house sparrow was first introduced into North America by a homesick Englishman. He brought them to Central Park, thinking he could make that into a little bit of Merry England. And in two decades, the house sparrow had taken over. Victorian environmentalists were already castigating the sparrow as a foreigner who competes unfairly with our native birds, a creature with an immoral character. <laughs> well, that's, they weren't entirely wrong. The house sparrow does mate for life, but along the way, it has a lot of what we might call extracurricular activity with other sparrows. It's a notoriously slutty bird. <laughs> so Victorian writers were, I mean, they were dealing with real stuff when they were accusing this bird of filthiness, sexual immorality, dishonesty. This is quotes. I am quoting you from an 1880 guide to how to get rid of your house sparrows. These birds are filthy, they're sexually immoral, they're dishonest, they're lazy, they're prone to mob violence and impudence and noisiness. And if you've ever had to sleep through a nest full of sparrows tweeting outside your window first thing in the morning, perhaps you can relate to some of that. Sparrows are cheap, and they're loud, and they're everywhere. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus asks. And I think he means to say, these, these guys are so ubiquitous, they're so easy to come by, that you don't even notice them anymore until they irritate you but God notices them. And then the sparrow becomes one of Jesus' favorite metaphors for thinking about what it means to love the world in the way that God loves the world. Not one of those sparrows falls to the ground, Jesus says, but your father sees it. So if you can trust the Almighty 
to care about the common house sparrow who is sold two for one at the food stalls. Can you not trust God to take care of you? That's an image that gives rise to a sometimes beloved American hymn. It's honestly, Glenn, no, no shade. It's one of my least favorite hymns, if we're being honest. It's the Treakley 1905 revival spiritual, His Eyes on the Sparrow. You heard a little bit of it in Glenn's, uh, in Glenn's preview. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eyes on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. If you're a fan of Mahalia Jackson, if you're a fan of Whitney Houston, you might know that one. It's, uh, it's by white Canadian Baptists, so go figure. But it, it has taken on a life of its own in the black church. We don't sing that hymn very often in the Episcopal church. It's not in the hymnal in front of you, which maybe illustrates, as the house sparrow does, that Episcopalians have tended in our history to denigrate that which is common and uplift that which is rare, like a 16th century German chorale. But some of you... <laughs> Some of you grew up with that common, sentimental little sparrow of, the, of a tune. I've always felt it was a little, uh, a little cloying, maybe, as if the hymn was saying, sparrows are cute, and God is cute, too. <laughs> but if there's anything Jesus has to say in this passage from Matthew, it's that God is not cute. And then this hymn kind of plucks a, a sunbeam silver lining out of what is otherwise a pretty dark text. This is the part of Matthew's gospel where Jesus famously warns his followers that they're going to get pretty beat up if they take this thing seriously. If they call the master of the house, of the house Beelzebul, he says. In other words, if they say, I'm Satan, just imagine what they're going to say about you. Do not think, he warns his followers, do not think that I have come to bring peace. The point of Christianity is not to get everybody to get along. The point of this thing is not to make life easier for you. This is not a happy religion. I have come, he says, to set a man against his own father, to set a daughter against her own mother. Your greatest foes will be the members of your own household. It's the people who say they love you the best who are going to be your greatest adversaries. This thing is going to be hard. If you take it seriously, it will break your heart. Relationships will end. Things will be said that you can never take back. Families will fall apart if you attempt to live faithfully to the truth that I am laying before you. Because for a lot of us, I suspect that this was true in the first century. It's certainly true for a lot of us today. Families are one of the first places where we learn how to hide. That's a survival mechanism, maybe. You become aware very early that your survival is dependent on the people providing you with food and shelter. So maybe our first lesson in life is to fake it so our parents will keep feeding us. I mean, that's a little desperate. That's talk about a parasitic relationship. That's a little manipulative. Only later on in life do we discover that there's this thing called unconditional love. And some of us do learn about unconditional love in our families of origin. But if the offices of therapists and pastors are any indication, some of us learn precisely the opposite. We learn about love's conditions, not necessarily about love's freedom. These are the ones who will call you the devil, Jesus says, not your enemies. It's going to be your family. It's going to be your friends. It's the one, ones who love you the best. Those are the ones who will have the hardest time understanding you. And then he says, there's no secrets, right? That's the whole point of this sermon. There are no secrets. Nothing in God's economy, nothing in the Jesus movement is meant to be hidden. Nothing is covered that will not be uncovered. Nothing is secret 
that will not be made known. That's what Jesus has to say about families. This man with a, with a famously tense relationship with his own parents and siblings, he, he stays connected to them seemingly throughout his life. One of Jesus' last actions on the cross is to entrust his mother into the care of his closest friend, the beloved disciple. So Jesus and Mary stay in each other's lives. My sense is that they drive each other nuts a lot of the time, which is a pretty honest depiction, I suppose, of what it's like to have a mother or what it's like to have a son. You can ask my mom, Claudia, about that one after church. I know it has not been an easy road to be my mother. She has been asked to take up her cross on multiple occasions. <laughs> and there, there have been times, there were whole years that went by when I was, I was pretty sure that my parents and I were done in every way that mattered. Phone calls were tense. We did our best to stay connected, even though there were lots of hard conversations that mostly we were not having because we'd already shouted all of the truly hurtful things at one another and everybody needed to time out a little bit. That's how we navigate, right? When things get complicated in families, we do our best to stay connected and sometimes we're able to through the rough patches and sometimes we're not. Sometimes relationships end when somebody's safety is at risk, whether that's physical safety, emotional safety, or spiritual safety. Sometimes you've got to make a break. Do not think I have come to bring peace, Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. That's hard. That's real. Some of you don't talk to your kids anymore, right? Or your siblings or your parents, or your crazy Uncle Bill, or the cousin who drank the Kool-Aid. We are living through a period in which families are more divided, seemingly, than they have ever been. So this stuff, it hits us where we live. We know the cost of following the gospel. We know the cost of following the truth. That's why many of us are sitting in this room, some of us all by ourselves. We know how hard it is when truth comes home to roost. And right there, in, embedded in the middle of this wrenching, painful sermon about families and swords, Jesus puts this bird, the sparrow, the forgotten one, the bird so obvious that nobody even sees it anymore, the little guy chirping his head off right outside the window, singing his, his crazy freedom song in the middle of a bombed-out battlefield, a, a scarred-over city, a, a family table rent in two. That bird just keeps singing. I mean, you can't, you can't stop the sparrow when this world is reduced to rubble and ash like the cockroach. There she is, inevitable and resilient and just plain noisy. She will not shut up. She sings because she's happy. She sings because she's free. Something about that bird, this invasive non-native species, this avian pest, something about the common house sparrow is so gorgeous to God. Jesus can't get enough of her stupid, treacly, insistent little song. She will not shut up. And as long as that bird keeps singing, Jesus says, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about a thing. Have no fear, he says. That bird is singing for you. God cares about the bird. God cares about every gosh darn bird. And God cares about you. Maybe you don't matter to anybody else in this world. You matter to God. I used to think that song was kind of dumb, His Eyes on the Sparrow. And then I heard Whitney Houston sing it from the last singles that she released from a, 
a movie that frankly isn't very good. It was near the end of her life, a couple weeks before she died, probably from a drug overdose, that's disputed. But you talk about a woman with a complicated relationship with her family and her friends and her lovers and her kids. I mean, all the people who loved Whitney Houston and preyed on her talent and her earnings, her, her dad who tried to control her and told her that she couldn't be with the woman she loved, her mom who taught her how to sing, trained that incredible voice and taught her daughter how to lie. You talk about the sparrows of this world, the forgotten ones, the desperate, promiscuous, hard-living ones who sing like the rent is due. I mean, if there were ever a person who could honestly sing, his eye is on the sparrow. That person was Whitney Houston. And when she sings these words, I believe them. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven's home when Jesus is my portion? A constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. So I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. I don't know about you, I want something of that. I want to learn to love not what's rare, but what's common. I want to appreciate what's right in front of me, resist the urge to drive off into the sunset in order to find my real life somewhere else. I want to, I want to watch the birds that are right outside my window and love them for themselves, not wishing they were some prettier, more colorful, rarer, and more exotic cousin. I want to be satisfied with peanut butter and jelly and a glass of milk on a hot day. I want to learn how to love this life exactly as it finds me, not waiting and yearning and hoping and praying for a paradise to come. I want to hold infinity in the palm of my hand, as the mystic William Blake writes, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, to hold infinity in the palm of my hand and eternity in an hour. I want to keep my eye on the sparrow. If the project is to learn to love this world in the way that God loves this world, maybe this is how it starts. She sings because she's happy. She sings because she's free. On the other side of every wrenching truth-telling Jesus promises, there is this glorious kind of freedom. It's the freedom that the sparrow knows. So maybe we can learn how to love that freedom, too.